Well, good morning. To your copy of God's Word, flip to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll be picking up in verse 12 this morning in our study together through the book of Hebrews. Our Jesus is Better Than series. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3 for this morning. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not uh, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that it, they uh, were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of it. Father, we thank you for the warnings that it gives to us. Father, we thank you for what we can learn. Not only about ourselves, but also about the great work that Christ has done in spite of us. And for us. And to deliver us. Father, today I pray that your word and our understanding of it and your graciousness to show the truth of it to us through your spirit. Will cause us to become stronger in our faith. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. This morning from this text in Hebrews chapter three. Jesus is better than our unbelief. Jesus is better than our unbelief. So an unusual providential thing of God happened this week. So this past Wednesday night when I was doing the the Zoom Bible study, the Ask the Pastor Bible study, someone had asked a question about evangelism and how how should we be doing that? How often should we be doing that? What does that look like? What are ways to try and do that when, you know, it it you know, it seems seems odd. And I just mentioned in that study that because of what I do and who I'm around, I'm I'm just not surrounded a lot by lost people. You know, what I mean, I, I come into the office, you know, at least once a week I share the gospel with Kyle, you know, but other than that, and I'm kidding, I'm kidding. He shares the gospel with me usually most weeks is what happens. So um, but, you know, that I'm just not, you know, I work with Christian people at a church. I lead Christian Bible studies for Christian people. I come into a sanctuary that are usually filled with Christian people. I go home to Christian people. And so it's it's not as normal for me as it would be for some of you to just be surrounded by folks who don't know the Lord. And so I was talking about, hey, you know, I, sometimes I really have to work at chances to try and share the gospel with people. And it happened that this week I had a meeting with some folks who were wanting to talk about some things. And one of them was wanting to talk about doubts that they were having about their salvation. So I had this real weird providential moment of, Hey, I don't usually get to talk to people about the Lord. And then I had somebody like two days later that I had a chance to talk to about the Lord. But in that conversation, 
they were expressing doubts about the work of Christ and his ability to save and their sinfulness and these kinds of things. And the reality of it is, for most of us, we, we tend to fall as Christians into two categories of people. The first category of people are people who legitimately have minimal doubts about their faith. Like there really is a group of Christian people who, man, they, you've trusted Jesus and like you've trusted Jesus. And you never have any doubts at all about anything in your Christian faith. Remarkable kudos to you. Like, really, that's amazing. Then there's the rest of us who, if we're honest in those dark, quiet moments when we're alone, having a conversation with ourselves that we know no one will ever overhear, we express substantial doubts about our faith. Whether it's, uh, can God really be man? What's up with this whole Trinity thing? Could the death of some guy 2,000 years ago really make a difference for me today? And if it can make a difference for me today, do you know how bad I've been? Can, can, is there really enough grace to cover all of that? And on and on, we could run through a, 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 a litany of things that we sometimes look at and go, hmm, I don't know. Now, the reason I say we say these things to ourselves in those dark, quiet places is because the church sadly has cultivated an environment where doubt is like the unpardonable sin. I mean, I've sat in environments and listened to people preach sermons. If you have any doubt at all, then you probably are lost and need to repent. And I'm thinking, oh, don't say that. Like you just made everybody in the room think they're not a Christian, man. Don't do that. I think the church needs a robust theology of doubt. And here's why. On almost every page of the Bible, what is the exhortation? Don't doubt. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Hold on to your faith. Keep on believing. Keep on overcoming, keep on persevering, keep on enduring. All of these are variations on a theme of you're going to hit a spot in your life where you're just not sure anymore. And what we want you to do from the Lord to us, what, what needs to happen is you need to press on, keep on keeping on, press through the doubt by looking past your unbelief To the greatness and the glory of Jesus. And the problem is, is that for a really long time, the church has not been brave enough to admit that people are going to have struggles, legitimate, real, meaningful, heartfelt struggles with unbelief. And that's okay. So if you've never heard that in your life, hear it this morning from me. If you have real, genuine, heartfelt struggles with unbelief, that's okay. Why? Because according to this text in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12, Jesus is greater than, better than our unbelief. And so there's a warning here, like there is so many other places in the Bible against unbelief. 
If it wasn't a real struggle, they wouldn't keep warning us about it in the Bible over and over again. Like if nobody, like as soon as you trust the Lord, you're never going to have a problem with unbelief. The Bible wouldn't have to keep going back to it. Say, hey, you need to be careful about this unbelief stuff. Like if it was just no big deal, we'd have gotten it once and then they moved on. And so here's another warning about unbelief. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So let's start with the two block section about what kind of unbelief is being addressed here. First, an evil unbelieving heart. There are two kinds of unbelief. There is that legitimate struggling, wrestling through unbelief that can occur that, that, Almost good doubt, if you will. King David wrote about it in some of the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will you continue to forsake? How long, O Lord, will my enemies continue to prosper? How long, O Lord, will I feel as if you are far away? There was no guile there when David was writing these things. It was a genuine expression from the heart of God. This is how it feels and it's causing me some tension and I'm having some doubts and I'm, I'm having some uncertainty. And the way that life looks compared to how you said you are in relationship to your people is causing me a great deal of anxiety because the two aren't lining up with each other. And I just need some insight from you, God, about what's going on here. It's, you know what? That's OK. There's nothing there, there's nothing wrong with that. Especially when you come to the conclusion that David came to in all of those Psalms. But I know. Or but you Lord. Or there's always a transitional uh, you know, if and or but phrase somewhere in that Psalm. Where he says okay. This is how it feels. But this is what I know to be true. And you're a good God. And you're a great God. And you will not allow injustice to continue. And even though I can't see it, I will trust you because you are better than my unbelief. And there's always that trend. There's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. But there is a kind of unbelief, a second kind of unbelief that comes from an evil place. And the unbelief emerges because of the presence of sin. And the example that's given here in this text are the grumbling people in the desert. He points back to them. It's in that context from last time and a re-reference to it here. Of those who wandered around in the wilderness. What was their unbelief like? Let's just kind of flash back to the story. Let's think about the days after the exodus. They transition. They cross the Red Sea. They start into the wilderness. They're moving toward the promised land. And what starts to happen? They start to grumble. And they start to complain. Were we not better off as slaves in Egypt? Did we not have better food to eat there than we have here? Did we not at least have houses to sleep in? Even though we were under the hand of our oppressor. Was it not better for us to be slaves in the pagan kingdom than it is to be free men in the wilderness with God? That kind of unbelief is coming from an evil place. 
That kind of unbelief is coming from a heart that desires comfort over the glory of God. And here, the writer to the Hebrews is giving a warning. He's saying, listen, make sure that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart. And then the second part of that says, that falls away from the living God. I I don't like that translation. It's the way most English texts translate that word, and I'm not a fan Because it it kind of makes it sound like this passive sort of deal. Like, I was was walking over by the step and I fell away down into the, you know, uh, oops. That's not really what that, how that word works. That word carries with it an emphasis on intentional departing. Or more aggressively, and how it's translated in some other places, the thought of forsaking. Which is something that you do with intent. So I have this evil, unbelieving heart. I'm finding a desire for comfort over the glory of God. I'm I'm not wanting to participate fully in God's economy. I'm wanting to try to keep one foot in the city of man and one foot in the city of God and enjoy the aspect of my life that is not pleasing to God while at the same time considering myself to be pleasing to the Lord. I have this division of interest that's going on in, in me. And the frustration that I have is not with a desire to flee away from my sin. The frustration that I have is the fact that God will not leave me in a contented place in my sin. And I'm frustrated with God that he won't let me have my cake and eat it too. And so what I begin to do in that moment is actively forsake the living God. That's what I begin to do. And friends, this is the sort of unbelief that must be preached against. Because this is stemming from a place of sin. There are two kinds of unbelief. One that stems from a genuine struggle with how things are, the already, not yet. And then another kind of unbelief, another kind of doubt that stems from a desire to love sin more than God. And the difficulty and the conversation that I was able to have with a person this week was is the, the real spot that you need to land on, the thing that you really need to grab a hold of, the challenging question that you need to ask yourself is why am I having the doubts that I'm having? Is there a genuine struggle with the, the richness and the fullness of the beautiful message of the gospel, which, friends, is overwhelming? I, I, again, I don't know everybody's background. I know my background and when I consider what I was and what I know, I still am way, way deep down in the darkness of my core and and the beautiful message that God has lovingly and willfully of his own sovereign design called me out of darkness and into marvelous light. I sometimes still find that quite unbelievable. But that's actually not a bad thing to wrestle with because it drives us to humility and gratitude and worship and all kinds of other things. But there's also been times in my life, and this was what I was presenting to this individual this week, where I start having very substantial doubts about my faith. And it's not because of the glory and the splendor of God and the amazing salvation that he's wrought in my life, but it's because there are things that I long for. That I should now hate if I'm in Christ. 
And I don't want to let go of those things. I want God to release me to enjoy those things. I want to forsake the living God. For the treasures to be found in Egypt. And friends, the doubt can manifest itself outwardly in the same way. But the root reason behind the doubt could either be a genuine struggle with the glory of the message or a desire to love our sin. And unless we examine ourselves, unless we ask ourselves the very difficult question, why is it that I'm having this struggle? Why am I having this unbelief? Why am I having this doubt? We won't ever get to the root of things to find out. Is it from a place of genuineness or is it from an evil, unbelieving heart? And so we have to ask that question. Now, we can't just ask that question in isolation. We move to verse 13 and we see that in order to combat this, there is an encouragement for community. Notice what it says in verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why is it that the writer to the Hebrews says to us. You need to encourage each other. You need to have community. If you want to avoid an evil, unbelieving heart that will begin to forsake the things of God. You have to do this not just alone, but also in community. Why? Because we are the world's best at lying to ourselves. We're the world's best at it. And it can't just be a little niche of really, 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 really close buddies that happen to also be Christians who are like-minded with you in every way. Because we also have a great tendency of those who know us best and are closest to us of being really, really, really good at lying to each other in those situations. There's a reason why throughout the scripture it lays out this multi-generational, multi-place on the road of maturity design and model. And that that should be integrated across our spiritual life so that there are objective eyes on our walk with the Lord that can make sure that this is not happening. Humorous example of how we are the best at lying to ourselves and lying to those who are close to us. Uh, it has since kind of wound itself down and been replaced by a number of other shows. But early on, when the show American Idol came out, I absolutely loved it. Not so much for the performance aspect of it. You know, there were some pretty good singers that came on that show. Few of them have won a lot of awards. But on the whole, there were some decent singers. But everybody tuned in early on for one main reason. There were some tragic train wreck of people who'd lied to themselves that they were talented. And the people closest to them had fed into that lie. And Simon Cowell was going to be the objective eyes to help expose the lying deceit that had been in, on them their whole life. And you just wanted to watch the train wreck that was going to happen when they attempted to display talent that they didn't have. And he attempted to display to them, someone has been lying to you your whole life. Because it was hilarious. That moment was just right to like, it was a genuine shock. You could really see the genuine shock on the person's face. They get up there and they were belting out notes that just don't exist. And then they look with this anticipation of like, I'm, I'm the next American Idol. And he's, you know, he drops whatever he drops on them. And there's just this contorting of the face like, what? no, 
My mommy always told me I was terrible. Well, she's been lying to you. She's, you're, you're, no, you need to not do this ever again. We have a tendency to do that in our Christian faith. Oh, I've got this. And then we look at our closest buddy. Hey, I got this. right. Oh, yeah, you got that. Yeah. And end up, we, we don't got that. And there's a call for an encouragement to community. If we want to maintain proper faith, it requires community. We must have other people in our lives with an objective look, looking past the facade of, of whatever we've created and into the depth and trying to evaluate, is there starting to emerge the presence of an evil, unbelieving heart? And how often should that happen? It says here, day after day, until it is no longer called today. Well, how, 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 how long do I have to have somebody do that for me in my life? Is there, is there like an arrival point? Is there like a line that you can cross over where it's like, okay, I'm good from here out? Absolutely not. We have to have people in our lives the whole time that we're living on this side of glory. Because as long as we are on this side of glory, we have not arrived yet. And when you think through the people who they're using an example of who'd wandered around in the wilderness and did not get to enter into the promised land. They were everyone from age 20 up. So it was everyone. So people who in slavery in Egypt had been calling out faithfully to the Lord for deliverance, which we know that's what they were doing. It says God heard their voice. And he sent someone to help them. And then they saw the miracles of God in the plagues. They saw the miracles of God in the, in the drowning of Pharaoh's army. They saw the miracles of God in the fire by night and the cloud by day. They saw the miracle of God with the manna. They saw the miracles of God with the quail meat. All these miracles they experienced firsthand. And yet they still, regardless of how long they've been doing it, wanted to go back to Egypt. So it didn't matter if they were 20 if they were a hundred, they still needed someone day by day in their life, giving them a spiritual check to make sure an evil, unbelieving heart was not emerging. They needed it. And I'm sorry, this passage, if it was the only one that talked about this would be enough. But there are so many other texts that talk about the need for community in our lives that we cannot be isolated Christians. All of this nonsense. I can worship God in my deer stand and on the golf course. Did you bring a whole bunch of people with you and participate in the sacraments? And we can just run through the list. No, of course you didn't do any of that stuff. The sentiment of what is meant by that is fine. That yes, you should be worshiping the Lord constantly everywhere you go. And all and whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you find to do, do it to the glory of God. Sure. Yes, you should be doing that. Absolutely. But friends, that is not the kind of community that this is talking about. And besides, if you're out doing an activity where you're by yourself, by definition, 
unless you have some legitimate psychological issues, you are by yourself. You're not with somebody else if you're alone. This is the reason why excommunication is such a big deal. Because the church is looking at someone's life after constant opportunities of calling them to repentance. And they're not repenting of what clearly the church deems to be sinful and unchristlike behavior. And the church is saying, you really need to not keep saying that you're a part of us. We're going to put you off by yourself. Because the reality of it is, is that you cannot maintain proper faith alone. Can't. You have to have community. Why? And it gives the reason why here. In verse 13. So that none will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's really easy for me by myself to look at a circumstance, to look at a situation and say, okay, I really want this. I really want this to be the way that it is. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to think this way or feel this way. And look around and there's nobody there and be like, I could come up some really cool ways why this is going to be okay and I'm still walking right with the Lord. When, in fact, if I had a few other eyes on it, a vulnerability and a transparency of life with some other people, I could then look at them and say, hey, don't you think this is okay? And the prayer is, is if you have enough people in your community who are walking rightly with the Lord, they'll very quickly and immediately go, hey, yeah, you don't need to do that. That's not okay. It's not a good way to think. It's not a good way to act. It's not a good way to be. Here's all the scriptures that show why this is a really bad idea. And then you go, oh, what do you guys think? Also a bad idea. Everyone here but me thinks this is a bad idea. Bad idea. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. This is what the community is supposed to do. Otherwise, if I'm left to myself, the deceitfulness in my heart will find a way to enjoy all the things I want to enjoy, whether they are pleasing to the Lord or not. That is the condition of the human heart. So we have to have community. We have to have people that are helping us with this. And so in verses 14 through 19, the writer here then declares that Jesus is better than our unbelief. Notice what it says in verse 14. We have become partakers in Christ. This is what we are. I wish we had more of a robust theology in this modern time. Of what it means to be in Christ and to be a participant in the life of Christ, to be a partaker of the glory of Christ. The way that the Bible talks about our participation in Christ almost sounds blasphemous to us because we're so un, uh, it's so uncommon to talk about it the way the scripture talks about it. But we are sharers in his glory. That almost sounds like I'm saying something wrong. But that's what the scripture says. We sit on a throne with him. We are clothed in his righteousness. He crowns us with a crown of life. We will rule and reign with him forever. Peter goes so far as to use a very unusual word in the Greek that gets roughly translated that we are participants in the divine. Like he goes so far as to say that. It. And every time I read that, I, I go, I'm, 
my unbelief sets in the good kind. And I go, I don't really know if I'm supposed to say that or not. Like, like I know me and I'm starting to understand God through his word. And I feel really uncomfortable claiming that one of the promises I have in Christ is that I'm a participant in the divine. Like that really makes me uncomfortable. But it's what it says. We are partakers. Christ. That's what we've become. What does that mean? What does that word partaker mean? It means one that shares in one who is a companion with we share in the things of Christ. Jesus in his own high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 prayed it this way. Father, love them with the love which with you have loved me. Same way that you, the first person of the Trinity, loves the second person of the Trinity. Love all of your people with that same love. Wow. We are participants in that. We are sharers in that. We are companions with that. We rule with Christ. We reign with Christ. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ and not the waywardness of our sin. As we prayed this morning from the Psalms, he has remembered our sin no more. It is as far away as the east is from the west. And that's a beautiful thing about the scripture. He didn't say it's as far as the north is from the south. You know why? Because you can travel north. And keep going north long enough, you're eventually going to start going south. That's how a globe works. Eventually you hit a peak point and you start going south again. But when you start traveling east, guess what? You're always going east. You have to turn around and go the other way to travel west. And our sin and the economy of the Lord because of the work of Jesus Christ is as far away as the east is from the west. That's what he's done for us because we are participants in Christ Jesus. He sees us and he sees perfected, flawless image bearers. Why? Because that's what Jesus is. We are partakers of this. We are participants in this. This is who we have become as God's people. But notice that it's plural. We have become this, not I have become this. We have to do this together. Jesus did not preeminently come to save you. He preeminently came to save us. He has a bride, but that bride happens to be a flock of sheep. We are one body made of many parts, but it's still one body. He is the head. We are the body. He's the groomsman. We are the bride. We are partakers in Christ Jesus. If. Always makes me uncomfortable when the scripture says a very robust statement like it just did and then throws the word if in there. We are partakers of Christ. Like you could just stop, put a period there. Man, you got a great sermon for that day. Nope. If, uh uh-oh, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hold fast our assurance until 
the end. And that's where the rub is. Because friends there, and, and, I, and I'm saying this as transparently as I can, and it always feels weird to people when I do this, but I'm trying to help. There's some people out there that struggle, and I'm trying to help them. There is rarely a day that goes by where I do not struggle with some measure of doubt about something as it relates to my relationship with the Lord. Say, Philip, you're a pastor. We just celebrated you being at this church for 10 years. You've been in ministry for over 20. You've been doing this since your late teens. You have two advanced degrees in theology. And yet not a day goes by where I don't have some measure of doubt about something as it relates to my relationship with Jesus. And that's why there's this aggressive call for us to hold fast the assurance that we have from beginning to end and to make sure that we open ourselves up to other people in the community who can help us see our faith rightly and clearly. Friends, if it were not for the gracious gift of the church and the spirit of God manifesting himself through the people of God to one another, I would have fallen off of the ship long time ago. Just this week, I was needing to find some files for something that I was working on. And I was digging through some of my stuff in my study. And I came across a file labeled funerals. And I usually keep funeral notes and funeral announcements and stuff in in there. And I was pulling that file out to get to another one. And it kind of popped open. And in the front was the funeral announcement of a dear old friend of mine from years and years ago named Ralph Duncan. Ralph was music minister and youth pastor, a music guy by choice, youth pastor almost by force, <laughs> a bunch, a bunch of years ago when I was a wayward, struggling teenager. In, in, in the time of my life where some of you have talked to Amanda, you know, we've known each other since like the third or fourth grade. And they're like, oh, so you've dated your whole lives? No, uh, why not? Philip was not, quote, datable material. That's what she, she's gracious to me and that's all she says. This was during that time when I knew Ralph. And I saw that and I just stopped, been working on this sermon all week and I just stopped and I just thanked God. I know that he's one of those cloud of witnesses guys up there now. He's with the Lord. He's waiting for the great day of redemption. Ralph really loved Jesus. And I just remember all of those struggles I had. I was able to comfortably and freely show up at Ralph's house, at his doorstep, at his office, wherever he happened to be. Phone call. Hey, man, listen, I'm my, my whole life is coming off the rails right now. I'm just not really sure about any of this stuff anymore. And he said, just, just stop by, man. Just stop by. We'll talk. And what he meant by talk was let me rant. <laughs> and he'd say, man, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just going to pray for you, though. And he would just pray for me. Never gave me any advice about it, actually. It was weird. But he would just pray for me. And then he'd remind me, say, man, I'm praying for you when, even when you don't stop by. I'm praying for you. Anytime you want to come talk about it, I'm praying for you. 
And it was people like him and a bunch of others that were like, you know what? I just want to be in your life. I want to hear what's going on. I want to pray for you. Occasionally, some people would offer some counsel, point me to some scriptures. I would have never made it through the struggles that I was having at that time, wrestling and wrangling with the faith and trying to do like Jonah and run from God. I would have never made it through if it was not for the community of faith helping me to hold fast to the assurance that I have. And if most of you in the room are honest, you have a similar testimony of your own life cataclysmic struggles and events and difficulties and circumstances and things that really make you just kind of scream at the heavens. And you didn't have to walk through it by yourself. We have to hold fast to the assurance. And then he quotes that verse again, second time in the same chapter that it's been cited. It says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It was the unbelieving one in the wilderness that received the wrath of God. The essential reality of the gospel is faith and repentance. Turning away from me, turning away from my own loves, turning away from the citizenship that I have in the kingdom of darkness. Turning away from that and trusting This is where we have to be really careful. Not knowing. I know a lot of people talk robustly about their relationship with the Lord. I know. No, you don't. It's called faith for a reason. You haven't seen it yet. The Bible even says this. (laughs) If you have sight, it's no longer called faith. There's coming a day (laughs) where our faith will be made sight. That is not this day. Well, at least not right the second. It's not. I'm. I'm not that kind of a prophet. It might be by the end of today. I don't know. But it's faith. It's trust. I am going to turn from what I know about myself, which is tragic. It's a wreck. It's dark. It's hopeless. It's helpless. It's death. I'm going to turn away from that. And I'm going to trust that Jesus is better than. And friends, I want to share a secret with you that helped me all of these years. There are a lot of things that happen in this world, a lot of things that we desire to be a part of that we don't need to be a part of, a lot of tragedies, a lot of difficulties, a lot of trying circumstances. And I'll just be quite honest, a lot of really robust things in Christian theology that kind of make you scratch your head and go, really? That seems kind of weird. Not really sure how that works. That might make you have legitimate doubts and struggles with your relationship with the Lord. Like where you really just go, I just. I don't know about this. I don't know. What has helped me massively over the years. Is that when you look past all of that. Your life circumstances, your trials, your desires, your longings, the confusion, the angst, the anxiety, whatever it is that is causing you to have doubt. When you look past that to the person and work of Jesus, it is always Jesus and his work 
are always better than whatever you're having a doubt about. Always. And there have been times in my own life where I was completely uncertain about everything else, but I was sure of this one thing. Jesus is better than. And I would just grab a hold of Jesus. And it's remarkable that when you grab a hold of Jesus, all those other doubts and fears and anxieties and worries, they just start to fade away. Just start to fade away. Because that's what Jesus does. That's what he does. And that it says here in this text that it's the one who continues to live in that unbelief. They're the ones that have to face down the wrath of God. The one who doesn't reach past their unbelief, reach past their doubt and grab a hold of the true reality that Jesus is better than. And so the question, as we've been ending every sermon with a variation on the question, what unbelief do we place above the greatness of Jesus? There are doubts galore to go around in this room today. Doubts about the future. Doubts about family stuff. Doubts about health stuff. Doubts about financial stuff. Doubts about political stuff. Doubts about overcoming a stronghold of sin in your life. Doubts about belief. Doubts about worldview. Doubts about all kinds of things. Struggles and anxieties and worries that drive us toward uncertainty and unbelief. What thing driving us toward unbelief today are we putting in a spot of greatness over Jesus? That's the question. Because as long as we give that thing, whatever it is, the preeminent place in our life to where it holds the greater sway than the glory of Jesus does. We are entering into the arena of the evil, unbelieving heart that was just warned about in this text. We can make a great idol of the thing that causes us doubt. And we can cling to that thing. And we can respond, yeah, but you just don't know. You don't know how hard it is. You don't know how difficult it is. You don't understand. You don't. I don't have to. Jesus is better than whatever that thing is. So what is it in our lives today that is being warned against in this passage? Take care, brothers. There not be any of you that have an evil, unbelieving heart and forsakes intentionally with volition and will the living God. In Egypt. The longing for a square meal. Inside of a house in the land of their captors. Was more valuable to them than the yet unfulfilled unseen promises of God. Their idol of unbelief was a warm bed and a full belly. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. For a lot of us, that's still the idol today. God, I know that you're trying to do this thing. 
But life is so much easier when I just do it this other way and just kind of ignore you on that. I think I'm going to go with this. It was better for me in the land of my sin than it has been in the journey toward your kingdom of salvation. And we take that unbelief, whatever that thing is, and we elevate it to this place of, yeah, I'd rather have that. Now, for us, it's not wandering in a desert. It's not having just been delivered from captivity in Egypt. But all of us have something in our lives that slams up against the foundation of our faith. Causes us to pause and to ponder and to wonder. To have doubt. To have uncertainty. Will we make that an idol that has the place of prominence in our lives? Or will we remember with the rest of the community of faith encouraging us that Jesus is better than our unbelief? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that Jesus is better than our unbelief. Thank you that there is nothing in this world, whether sin, whether success, whether an offering, whether a pleasure, whether a person, whether a political system, whether a country, whether a nation state, whether whatever it may be. There is nothing that is better than Jesus. And Father, while the food in Egypt may have tasted good, and the beds may have been warm, it was still the land of captivity to sin. And while the wilderness and the desert may have been hot in the day and cold at night, and the food repetitious and mundane, it was still moving people toward freedom and salvation by you, our Lord. And Father, help us to understand that a man tired and hungry walking with you in the wilderness is far more blessed than the man who is well-rested and full, living in captivity of sin. Help us to see and to know and to encourage each other day by day while it is still called today that Jesus is better than our unbelief. And we praise you for the gracious kindness that you will show us as you grow our faith, increase our faith, Because you are the author and perfecter of that faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.